Okay, we're going through the Old Testament and we're up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let me say as we get started that we can learn from the mistakes of others. In our passage today, we're going to see a story that happened in David's life where he made some horrible mistakes and he committed some horrible sins. But God is going to use this story in his life to teach us some important lessons. And by the Lord exposing this ugly part of David's life, it can hopefully save us from a world of hurt if we learn from his mistakes. So one lesson we get from this passage is that the mess-ups that we have in our life, you know, God can even use them to teach other people. And it's, it's not comfortable at all when that happens, but God can use our sins and failures to teach others how to avoid those landmines that we stepped on. And sometimes our mess-ups seem like they're landmines because they blow up our life and we can come out the other side with some major losses. So as we get into our passage today, our prayer is, Lord, help us to learn from David's mistakes. You know, don't let, us go, don't let this go in one ear and out the other. Uh, please burn these lessons deep in our hearts so we don't cause irreparable damage in our own life and more importantly in the lives of others. So with that prayer in our heart, let's, let's get into our study in uh, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So the Lord tells us right, in, right off the bat here that there's a problem. David should have been out with his soldiers on the battlefield and not back home in Jerusalem. So we see that David wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. You know, and when we're not doing what we should be doing, then we're in a dangerous place spiritually. We're opening ourselves up to temptation, and that's what happened to David here. You know, the Bible says the devil walks around like a roaring lion. He's, he's seeking whom he may devour. And when we're not busy doing what we should be doing, we're putting ourselves on the devil's menu. In verse 2, it goes on. Then it happened one evening. <laughs> Interesting how the Lord says this, you know, it's like, then it happened. <laughs> it's like, yeah, bad stuff coming here. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and he walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So we see another problem here. It was evening, and David had already gone to bed. So that tells us that he was probably tired, okay? That's another time when we really need to be on guard, because it seems like when we're tired and worn out, then we're in a more weakened state when it comes to resisting temptation, you know, David should have just gone back to bed and he would have been better off. He's not doing what he should be doing. He's supposed to be out there with his troops. And on top of that now, he's tired and bored apparently. Wow, that's a recipe for getting into trouble. And this trouble that David's about to stumble into is going to scar him for the rest of his life. You know, David may not realize it, but he's made himself very vulnerable to temptation uh, take a look at what the Lord tells us in Ephesians 5, and this is a really good word for us to, to take in. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5, 
the New Testament there. Ephesians 5 and verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. So the Lord says to walk circumspectly, which means carefully. And he says to redeem the time, not waste it. And he goes on to tell us why, because he said the days are evil. So there's temptation all around us. And we have a tempter, the devil and his adversaries, just waiting to pounce on us, you know, when they get a chance. So the Lord instructs us to be wise and not be foolish. David here was not being wise in what he was doing at that moment. And back in our passage in 2 Samuel 11, the Lord tells us an interesting detail here. He said that the woman that David was seeing here, that she was very beautiful. So now David's in real trouble. You know, when we're first tempted and we have that first glance, that isn't sin. But it's, been, it's when we start to, as it says here, to behold that's when it becomes sin. And I'm sure David was beholding here because of what happens next. You know, David is going to actually take action on his temptation. Not action against it, but action to enhance it. So in verse 3, So David sent, and he acquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So the Lord doesn't tell us who this person is, but David wanted to find out some information. So he sends to get some intel on this. And in the process of getting intel, he's told a couple of things here about whose daughter this is and whose wife this is. I believe the Lord was trying to warn David here and actually trying to wake him up so he could come to his senses. You know, David was told, this is someone's daughter. And this woman was someone's wife. So that information should have made David back off. But he blew past all of those warnings. And remember, the Lord tells us that he never allows us to be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. But that with the temptation, he will also make the way to escape so that we can be able to endure the temptation. And that's in 1 Corinthians 10, if anybody's looking for that passage and you need to remind yourself, you know, of that. So I think the Lord was, was giving David that way of escape here from his temptation by reminding him that this woman is somebody's daughter and it's somebody's wife. So David couldn't say that God didn't try to stop him, right? And we can't say that either because the Lord loves us and he always tries to stop us when we're being tempted to get into trouble. When temptation comes and we start to give in, you can hear that still small voice of the Lord inside trying to wake you up and turn you around. But you have to be listening for that voice. So you know we say, oh Lord, please give us ears to hear. In verse four in our passage, in 2 Samuel 11, verse four it says, then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. So David took what he wanted, and he did what he wanted, and then he let her go back home like nothing ever happened. 
The Lord just tells us this whole episode in one verse, and it's so sad. The darkness of night may have covered her going home, but our Lord sees in the darkness. You can't fool him. And at this point, you know, I want us to see someone who was able to withstand a very powerful temptation in his life. It's a passage that we've studied before quite a while back, but I'd like us to see the right things to do when you're, tempta- when you're tempted and temptation comes at you, uh, right alongside these wrong things that we're seeing David do. Here, look back to Genesis 39. In Genesis 39, and it's been quite a while since we went through this passage, but I tell you, if you get a chance to just put these passages side by side in 2 Samuel 11 and, and Genesis 39 and just look at, at the difference between them, what's done right and what's done wrong. In Genesis 39, look down to verse 7. This is in the, the life of Joseph. It says, And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. He has committed to me all that he, all that he has to my hand. So right away, Joseph refused the idea even of what she was offering, and he gives her a reason. He said, Your husband has blessed me. He's trusted me with all kinds of things here, you know. So it's like, I cannot betray that trust. Verse 9, there is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And the huge difference you see here When Joseph looks at this opportunity that he has, he says that it is great wickedness and he sees it as sin against God. When David looks at his opportunity, all he sees is pleasure and a good time. Wow. You know, we've got to be so careful. Our flesh is is wicked. The days are evil. We've got an enemy who wants to tempt us. And if we don't keep our eyes on the Lord, we don't stay committed to him, we can get in serious trouble. Look a little further in this Genesis 39 passage. There's some more here. So it was in verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day by day. This was not a one-time opportunity. This was a continual pressure on Joseph. And it says that he did not heed her. He continued to say no, no, no in his heart. He says he would not lie with her or be with her. He wasn't even going to be in her presence. Great wisdom here. Stay away from whatever it is that tempts you. Verse 11, but it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work. So he was there for the right reason, in the right place, doing what he was supposed to do. And it says, and none of the men of the house was inside. Now, he's in a place that he didn't set up. He didn't make it so he was going to be alone with her. She apparently set this up, I'm sure, and sent everybody else away. And it says in verse 12 that she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. So not only has she been trying to entangle him and seduce him with her words, now she is physically grabbing him to pull him close to her. 
And it says, she says here in verse, it says in verse 12, but he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he ran outside. Joseph is an amazing picture of fighting temptation. When the temptation came, he refused it. He didn't want anything to do with it. He remembered the blessings that God had put into his life. And he said, I can't do this again against God. I just can't do it. And even when the temptation is so strong that she's even pulling him, trying to get him close, he decides, I'll let go of this garment. I don't need this garment. If that's what it takes to get free, I'll let go of that. So he, he flees from that, and it says he ran outside. He didn't say, you know, I'm going to take a, a nice stroll. Maybe I'll change my mind on the way. No. He ran outside. He was getting away from temptation as quickly as he possibly could. And what, a, what an amazing picture of how to avoid falling to temptation. And unfortunately, David shows us about the exact opposite picture here. He does everything wrong. He stays where he shouldn't be. He keeps looking at what he shouldn't look at. He even takes action to make it happen. And, you know, it's amazing. Here's David. Uh, I mean, Joseph, he's a slave. He doesn't have too much control over his situation. David has all the control in the world over his situation. And he chooses to go towards sin and toward temptation instead of running away from it. So we got to be really careful, especially when things seem to be going so well in our life. The enemy likes to say, now I'm going to trip them up. Go back to our passage in 2 Samuel 11. <clears throat> So after David has been with her, verse 5, it says she's gone back to her house. So it's over, right? He's safe. It's done. He got away with it. The woman conceived, verse 5 says, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. So now we see the consequences of David's sin. A lot of times when we're being tempted, the last thing that we want to think about are the consequences that could happen. I think the devil might even try to block those things out of our mind. Or, you know, if he can't do that, then he might whisper a lie in our ears like, oh, those consequences would never happen to you, you know? And he's hoping that we're going to believe his lies. But more often than not, I think the devil just tries to flood your mind with thoughts of how pleasurable sin can be because he doesn't even want you to think about the consequences at that moment. He did that with Eve in the garden, if you remember. He got her focus on the supposed benefits of eating the forbidden fruit, you know? He didn't want her thinking about all the horrible crimes and wars and hatreds and prejudices that her sin would cause down the road. Consequences are actually a deterrent to committing sin. So the devil really wants that to be the very last thing on your mind when temptation comes. Now, there is kind of a small redeeming side note here in this verse, and it's a small one, but notice what she says, that she is with child. She didn't call it a fetus or a blob of tissue. So I like to point it out when the Lord brings out these truths so clearly and so consistently and so naturally, you know, that she was with child. And our, our society today tries to avoid using terms like that because 
they want to make money off of killing babies. So they never use the term that she was with child. You know, at very best they might say she was pregnant and, and leave it at that. So here we have David. He finds himself in a very difficult spot. He's just found out that Bathsheba is, is pregnant with his child. And it's like someone said, David was at a crossroads. And it's a place where we can all find ourselves at one time or another. He had a choice to make. Should he take this to the Lord and confess his sin, which would be the right choice, or should he try to hide his sin and cover it up? And David decided to handle this his own way, trusting in himself rather than trusting in the Lord. He doesn't do the right thing, which would have been to confess this sin to God. So here's a principle that we're going to find here, and it's taught in other parts of the Bible too. One sin leads to another. And by that I mean if, if we fail to confess our sin, then our one sin can easily lead to another sin and another sin and another sin. And this place right here is, is really, unfortunately, a really clear place to see that happen because that's exactly what's going to take place. And this all could have been avoided if David would have done the right thing. You know, if he would have just come to the Lord, confessed his sin, and dealt with it right there. And you know, in the New Testament, in 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when it says to confess, it doesn't mean just to say the words. Lord, I did this. Sorry. See you later. But that's not what it's talking about. To confess there means to say the same thing that God says about sin. And that means when we see sin, when we look at the sin we've committed, we need to see it the very same way that God sees it. And what does God see when he looks at sin? He sees something that is ugly and it's wicked. It leads to death. It's like leprosy an open and oozing sore that can spread. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. It's like a stinky, bloated, dead animal on the side of the road. And when we sin, it's like we went back to play with that dead animal and we're touching it and just enjoying being with that dead animal. That's how God sees sin. With all of its ugly mess and its stench, that's what God sees. So when we confess our sin, it should turn our stomach. It should make us nauseous that we were engaged in sin. Unfortunately, we usually see sin as something that we want to play with. And it's like we don't realize that we're playing with a deadly viper snake that's just waiting for an opportunity to strike and destroy our life. Now, had David done the right thing after he confessed his sin to God, that's the first step. The next thing he should have done was to confess his sin to the parties that were involved. David needed to confess that this was wrong to Bathsheba, and he needed to go to her husband Uriah and confess that he did wrong by him as well. And although that would have been very difficult to do, the consequences of not doing that 
was going to lead to a much worse situation. And this is something we really need to take to heart as we look to this too. It's a very hard thing to, to, to have to stand up and confess to your sin, especially when you've affected people and it's going to have an effect on their lives. It's extremely hard to have to step up and deal with that. But it's the best thing to do because it's not going to get better down the road if we ignore it and we just hope it's going to go away, you know? We need to have done, when we have done a sin and it's affected other people, I know it's hard. We need to kind of confess that. We need to do whatever we can to try to make things right. You know, and if we don't, and we've left the door open, you know, that can allow much worse consequences to happen. Consequences that are going to hurt the ones that we love much deeper than if we just confessed it in the first place. Think about this in Bathsheba's case. How's this going to affect her? She's going to lose her husband, and he's a good man, as we're going to see. He's a very honorable man, a man who always did the right thing, even when it cost him personally. And you know it's hard to find a man like that. He always did the right thing, even when it was going to cost him, you know. And she was going to lose him. And instead, she's going to become the wife of an adulterer in a murder. Spoiler alert, if you didn't read ahead, sorry. <clears throat> but look at the loss. She's going to suffer. And it's all because of David's original sin and his lack of confession to the Lord. This story has some, some very hard lessons, you know, but we see these in the Bible. And it's painful medicine to take in. But we pray that the medicine works and we don't do things as foolishly as David does here. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Look at verse 6. Then David sent to Joab, that's his commander of the, his military. He sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite, that's her husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. You know, David didn't really care about what Uriah was giving in answers here. David was just making small talk. He's trying to set up Uriah. That's his plan, that he's going to have him go home and sleep with his wife so that when the word gets out that she's pregnant and everybody's going to think, well, yeah, he came home around that time. This baby must belong to Uriah. So David is trying to use this man, Uriah, to cover up his own sin. And worse yet, when you think this through, David was willing to disown his own son that Bathsheba was carrying just to save his own embarrassment. Wow. Do you see how sin can poison our minds and make us think and do things that we never thought we would do. Wow. David's apparently okay at this point, too, with Bathsheba lying to her husband for the rest of her life. And you think to yourself, what's wrong with you, David? What happened to you? Where's the man who's after God's own heart? And when this sinks in, you know, we learn from this that we're all capable of sin and of doing sin on a much lower level than we thought we would ever stoop to. And we're forced to say, oh, but for the grace of God, 
There go I. But David has had this weakness in his life for a long time, and he never dealt with it. I mean, look how many wives David collected. So this sin, it didn't happen overnight, and it never does. We allow compromises in our life, and they lower our resistance to sin. And unfortunately, that makes it a lot easier to fall when temptation comes. So David kind of set himself up by not dealing with this sooner. And look how many lives are affected. Look at verse 8. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. You know, get comfortable. (laughs) So Uriah departed from the king's house. And a gift of food from the king followed him. So David encourages him to go home and relax and, you know, spend some time with your wife. And David even sends home a romantic dinner with Uriah. What a treat, you know, in those days. And by doing this, he's letting Uriah know, you've got my full blessing to enjoy your home and your wife. And he doesn't want Uriah to feel guilty about being home and spending time with her while Israel's out at at battle and still at war. What a nice guy David is, huh? Want him to just have a, a nice evening at home with his wife. Wow. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants, don't miss that, of his Lord, and did not go down to his house. Uriah was such a man of integrity that he would not take advantage of his situation, knowing that his fellow soldiers were still on the battlefield. What a difference between David and Uriah. (laughs) David didn't think twice about taking advantage of Bathsheba, did he? A lady who was married to another man and a good man at that. Wow. And look what Uriah did. He slept with the servants of David, his king. And you know, as long as we see ourselves as servants of our Lord, we're going to have a hard time doing anything wrong. So be humble and not prideful when temptation comes knocking at your door. Uh, Verse 10. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? So David's saying, Aren't you glad to be home? Why aren't you spending time with your wife? So here's David Reading motives. (laughs) Remember what we saw last week? That people who try to read motives, they think people are like them and that they would do what they would do. So David here is thinking, you know, if I was coming back from a long journey like you, I'd be with one of my wives or with somebody else's wife, as the case might be here. But see, David has a weakness when it comes to women. And he thinks that Uriah must be just like him. But Uriah is not. Uriah has an integrity that runs deep, even deeper than his own personal desires. When we try to read somebody else's motives, we are wrong. We don't always know why people do what they do. And David was so wrong here. You look at verse 11. Uriah said to David, 
Because David's saying, why didn't you go home? You know, your wife's here, what's up? And Uriah said this, the ark, that's interesting, that the first thing Uriah would say is the ark. It says the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So the first thing Uriah mentions is that ark. And that's interesting because Uriah is a Hittite. He was not born an Israelite. You know, we can tell, though, that he was a convert to Israel's God. It's very interesting. Uriah's name even means light of Yahweh. (laughs) So Uriah was a spiritual man, and that was one of the things that kept him from going home to his wife. Out of respect for the Lord, out of respect for all the men who were fighting for Israel, all those men who were not allowed to come home to be with their wives and families at that time. And Uriah saw that as an unjust thing to do. Wow. You know, David has one good and faithful soldier here. And he was willing to sacrifice fulfilling his own pleasures out of respect for the Lord and for his fellow troops. You can't ask for a better attitude than that. And Uriah even ends up pointing things at David here when he said, As you live, meaning you my king, and as your soul lives, I will not do this. You would think at that point that the conviction would be causing David, you know, to feel all the shame and the sorrow from what he had done. But instead, you know, David retreats. He's just going to continue in his prideful path. He's going to come up with another plan to hide his sin. And he doesn't care what it would cost. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also and tomorrow. I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie in his bed, not with his wife, but with the servants of his Lord. It says, but he did not go down to his house. So David hatches his new plan. And this plan involves getting Uriah drunk. Because David thought, surely if he's drunk, you know, then he's definitely going to go down and see his wife. But this Uriah, this man who had the light of Yahweh, he has more integrity when he is drunk than David when he is sober. Wow. So when David got Uriah drunk, that was a sin on David also. It says David made him drunk. So we see again that one sin leads to more sin. And this pattern will continue. We need to confess our sin and bring this pattern of evil spreading to more sin. We need to bring it to a halt. So verse 14. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And here's another one of those statements, you know, in the morning, it happened. It's kind of like here's another bad decision on David's part. Wow. He wrote this letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, 
set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him. And here's the reason, that he may be struck down and die. (laughs) Can you believe the audacity and the coldness of David's heart to not only plan the murder of this amazing soldier of his, but to send him away carrying his own death sentence in his hand. And the guy being so trusting of David, he's not even aware of what he is carrying. Doesn't even take a second thought about it. But David knew that this man was so trustworthy that I can send this message with him. And he knew Uriah would take it exactly where it's supposed to go. He was never going to open it and he would never read it. Now that's really cold on David's part. And by the way here, we look at Uriah. Here is our picture of Christ. Just like Uriah, Christ was innocent too, and yet he was sentenced to death. Wow. Verse 16. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. So he knows there are strong warriors, there are good fighters in this area. And that's exactly where he places him, and it would naturally be a dangerous place to get so close to that area, but that's exactly where Joab sends him. It says he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men, and it's like he's just he set him up at this point knowing he's not going to survive. Verse 17, it says, Then the men of the city came out, and they fought with Joab. So they actually came outside of the city walls, They started to fight with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. So we have to see this here, though. Joab didn't obey David completely. David had said to put Uriah out front and then retreat from him. But Joab didn't do that. He sent other men to fight beside Uriah, so it didn't look so obvious that they were trying to kill him specifically. Maybe he's trying to cover himself on that. I don't know. Now, of course, this meant that other soldiers are going to have to die too in order to pull this off. So there are some more consequences of David's sinful actions. More people die. More lives are lost just so David can try to hide his sin. Wow, the evil poison of sin, huh? Verse 18, then Joab, he sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and he charged the messenger, the guy that he sent in with the news, He said, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? He said, if David blows up and says that to you, then you shall say this. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So Joab knows that David might get upset when he hears the news that they made a mistake. They got too close to the wall of the city. It's a very vulnerable spot where you're at a great disadvantage. So Joab prepares the messenger. And he says, if David starts to lose it, then just tell him that Uriah died too. Joab knew that that news would calm David down And then he would understand why they went so close to the enemy's wall. Verse 22, so the messenger went and he came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. 
The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. I think it's interesting, you know, that the servant didn't even give give David a chance to react to the news of them getting too close to the city gates. The servant just kind of blurts it out and tells him up front, you know, including the news about Uriah here. He doesn't even want David to get mad and start screaming at him. Maybe he's afraid for his own life. I don't know that too. But And what do you think, you know, about what the messenger said about Uriah? Did you catch that? He said that Uriah was a servant of David. That's what he called him, your servant, Uriah. Well, that meant that he would have done anything that David asked of him. He was such a loyal man, and it's a shame that he died in such a treacherous way. Verse 25, then David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against this city and overthrow it. So encourage him. So he's telling him to encourage Joab. You know, David's message back to Joab was so deceptive as well. And again, you see the coldness in David's attitude. Uh, stuff like this happens. So tell Joab not to get down over this. You know, and David wants the messenger to encourage Job. So in other words, reading between the lines, David was saying, well done. You did a good job. I'm pleased. Wow. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. I think it's interesting how the Lord records this for us. Did you notice he emphasizes the fact that Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah and that Uriah was her husband. The Lord doesn't sidestep things like that. You know, we might be tempted to do that, but the Lord calls it very clearly. This was his wife. He was her husband. He calls things the way that they are, and he always speaks the truth, even when it's painful. Verse 27, and when her mourning was over, somebody said it was probably a very short mourning period, because they got to get this show on the road and make it look like David's the right guy for the right deal here. So when her mourning was over, David sent and he brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So at this point, David thinks that he pulled it off and he even found a way to kind of profit from this fiasco as far as fame goes. I mean, think about how he looked to the community of Israel. This poor lady, she lost her husband at, at war. So now she's going to be a poor, destitute widow with no one to care for her. But the king himself steps up and brings this widow into his home, and he marries her so he can take very good care of her. David would be seen as such a great hero by doing this. But like somebody said, you can fool a lot of people, but you can never fool the Lord. And as it says here, that the Lord was displeased with what David had done. You know, we need to be really straight with ourselves. God is never okay 
with our sin. Just because the hammer doesn't drop the moment we sin, don't deceive yourself into thinking that God doesn't care. Read that last statement again. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. Wow. What, what a sad, sad statement here, you know, on David's life. And this was a scar that affected him. You know, the Bible tells us a great name is rather chosen than, than great riches. A good name is rather chosen than great riches and loving favor than silver and gold. And David blew it here. He tarnished his name, something that could not be erased. And we're given a short time on this earth, you know, and we want to be so careful not to tarnish the name of being a Christian, one who follows the Lord. So guys, I ask you, pray for each other. Pray for me. <laughs> we want to finish the race well. We want to do what God's called us to do. We don't want to have to, to backtrack and apologize and say we messed up and say that we sinned and we've damaged so many lives. We don't want to have that testimony. And that's why the Lord shows us stories like this about such a great man as David. Had a heart for the Lord, loved the Lord. The amazing thing to me is he also had the Holy Spirit. He's one of the few people in the Old Testament that clearly says he had the Spirit. So he's like us, Spirit-filled guy who messed up really bad. So it's a warning for us. You know, we've got so much going for us, but beware. We also have our flesh that hangs around and tries to whisper to us once in a while. You can do this. You can get away with it. God won't care. You're special. You're above everybody else. It's not going to happen to you like it happened to other people. All those lies coming from our flesh, coming from our enemy, we've got to be so careful. So guys, this is a tough passage. This is one that's painful to go through. And Lord, I pray the Lord brings us back to this passage time and again and read it with Genesis 39. Put them together. See the strengths. See what's to do right and what to avoid doing wrong. So the Lord gives us a good word today. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to help us to take these words deeply into our heart. Let us not sin against you, Lord, by not obeying them. Thank you for the warning. Thank you for being so straightforward in these passages. And Lord, it breaks our heart to see David, who seemed to be doing so well, walking with you, Lord, trusting you. And he has such a great fall. Lord, we know you're not done in David's life. You're going to work in his life, and you're going to restore him. But the scars will remain. And Father, as we're here today, maybe we've already crossed that line. Maybe we've messed up, and we've brought scars in our life. Lord, I pray you'd restore us, help us to walk with you, help us to finish our days walking closely with you. Lord, help us to follow the example of Joseph. Help us to learn from what we saw in David's life. Thank you for those who are here today, and we pray for those too who are, are watching the live stream, Lord. We pray penetrate these things in our heart very deeply. Let us take that heart medicine, and we pray it would, would chase the poison of sin away from our thinking. Thank you, Father, for all you're doing. You get all the praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.